Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Uncourt Corner Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm here with my co-host, Bianca. As you know, we cover the full spread of food and beverage industry topics, and today we are going to be talking kitchen knives. So we brought in some special guests, so we actually have someone that knows what they're talking about today, Evan and Ryan from Strata here in Portland, Maine. Uh, so let's start by having each of you give your backgrounds, how you got into uh, the culinary game, and we'll take it from there. Cool. Well, thanks for having us. Nice to be here. Um, well, I uh, initially got into the food industry working in like specialty markets uh, with like largely imported or handmade goods. Uh, I was working in in the Bay Area in San Francisco uh, about five years ago um, and was working at this pretty well-known market called Byright Market, uh, which is a really cool place you guys to check out. Um, and kind of kitty corner to, to the market was a uh, shop uh, much like ours, kind of modeled after called Bernal Cutlery. Um, and they were kind of one of the pioneers. Uh, and by pioneer, I mean about 15 years ago, which isn't too long ago. But in, in this industry, at least for the West, it's, it's quite new. Um, and uh, I just thought it was super cool. I wasn't uh, unlike Ryan, who will tell you uh, about himself, I'm not uh, very skilled uh, as a chef. Um, I, I tend to nerd out on uh, the sharpening and history and, and whatnot. Um, so I thought it was just really cool. Uh, I've never seen a shop like it before. And I just um, spent a good amount of my break time uh, running down the street and asking them a bunch of questions and just drooling over their selection. And you know, really, uh, from there on, I've been self-taught. Uh, it's not really any consolidated uh, sources of information, at, you know, at least as a whole. Um, so it's really, you got to go out there and find, uh, find this information. So I've spent, you know, 10 to 20 to, gosh, maybe 30,000 hours studying and practicing and learning what we can. And uh, now we're here. <laughs> It's pretty crazy. So um, it's been a wild ride, and um, there's always really, truly, it's one of those fields where there's more to learn. Um, uh, you know, it's such a worldwide-based uh, application, cooking, <laughs> uh, and tools uh, such as knives, so old. So it's always, always something to learn, and always, uh, you know, since there's a skill-based component to it, uh, always a way to uh, improve your skills. So it's just been kind of geeking out since since then. Honestly, it's. So not much more than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm Ryan. Uh, I'm sort of Evan's apprentice. Um, I sort of have a little bit more of a culinary background. Uh, I grew up with my grandfather owning a pizza restaurant. So I was always there doing that stuff. And then uh, when, you know, when the hammer really started to come down and I had to decide when I was 18, what I wanted to do, my final decision was, you know, what makes me happy. So I uh, went and actually started working at Hugo's under Rob Evans, who's, you know, somewhat, somewhat popular in Portland, Maine. Uh, he's a pretty, you know, really big influence on me and taught me sort of everything I knew. So I was working at Hugo's to start, uh, went over to Duck Fat, uh, was sort of running Duck Fat for a little while, um, went out to Pai Men, learned some Asian cuisine, went down to the Royal River Grill House. Um, the entire time, I just really enjoyed, you know, knife skills, you know, working with knives and just you know, it's a way to sort of, you know, separate yourself. It's just by having those super clean cuts and just, you can show the, your, your attention and your care for what you're doing based on, you know, 
how well you, t- uh, you know, do your knife skills and whatnot. And uh, then as soon as Evan opened up, I pretty much showed up one of the first days there, sort of fell in love and was kind of like, all right, I'm going to do whatever I can to, to get myself a job here. And, uh, you know, within two months, I was, you know, putting in my effort and started working there. So uh, it's been a little over a year that I've been full time. So, you know, it's, as Evan said, there is just an endless amount to learn and having Evan to look up to and be able to talk to about, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I get so into a hobby and, you know, sometimes you get so far into a hobby, you lose people to talk to about it. They're like, you know, and Evan's just someone that I can always have that deep conversation with about the culinary industry and about knives because it's just endlessly fascinating. Yeah. I think we, we both have some obsessive <clears throat> personalities that allow us to, uh you know, endless entertainment and strive for perfection, although it's never attainable. So we work, uh, we work pretty well together. So it's pretty, pretty, been pretty fun. Yeah, it's awesome. definitely uh, seems like a very meticulous skill and job to do. So I imagine you would have to have that type of personality to really enjoy and get a lot out of it. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Yeah. That's why 100%, Nick and I are here. All we talk about is food and booze all the time and, and everything related. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Do yeah. what you yeah. love. That's what they say. <laughs> exactly. And food is such Honestly. an easy way to connect with people. That's the truth. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about the store itself. So I know you guys really specialize in it was Japanese whetstone sharpening techniques. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I mean, that's one use, aspect of it. Yeah, we use a multitude of, of tools, uh, but largely, uh, we, you know, you get a lot of precision with your hands. Uh, and you can really get down to the nitty gritty and, you know, there's, there's hundreds, hundreds, there's thousands of, uh, you know, natural stones from around the world. Uh, Japan has a very unique, uh, tectonic history that yields some very special stones, but there are also stones, uh, dotted well, everywhere. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, we, we use kind of whatever we need to do to get the job done. Uh, we have a specialized belt grinder. Uh, we have a buffer. Um, and then we work our fingers to the bone on uh, whetstone. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. And with the, you know, introduction of ceramic stones, which are, you know, geared specifically towards knife sharpening, you know, um, it seems like it's just going to be an always, growing and changing world where there's never going to be that that golden standard of the way to get it done and uh you know that's you know that's fun in itself so if you had to sum it up in kind of like a paragraph or two what would you say kind of give me the whole bio of strata the store sort of how i guess I, you already told me a bit about your personal background but what was the vision behind starting a store what is your main thing i know you guys have a nice little shop with a many many knives all over of all different yeah. styles and it was really cool getting a, I met Ryan yesterday when I was in there and I got to check some stuff out. It's really cool. So tell me uh, exactly overall how you would sum up what you do. Uh, well, we import and service the best generally kitchen cutlery from around the world, um, primarily Japan and Europe, uh, who those two, you know, Europe is broad, but uh, you know, those two centers probably have the most uh, catalog history and vibrant, still ongoing history. Uh, so a lot of our inventory comes comes from new, those two areas. Um, you know, there's even even within a single country, uh, say France, 
there's there's lots of subregions, and those each have their own, you know, sub styles. And then you know you get in Japan, and it is just it, it's crazy. It's uh, you know it can be very overwhelming uh, for a lot of people, but uh, it's endlessly fascinating. And it also means that there's probably something exactly for you. But uh, yeah, we spent a lot of lot of lot of time. Uh, uh, years really uh, building connections. Uh, this is a you know since these are all handmade, uh, you know it, you can basically think of it as functional art. So you can't just go online and talk to nobody and you flip through a catalog and order X number of these and Y number of those. Uh, you know this very much a trust-based face-to-face business. Um, it's very old. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it is exciting to, to meet people all around the world, but, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, finding the best things we can, bringing them in, and then we also service stuff as well. So we kind of have two, two aspects of the business currently. Um, hopefully we'll be expanding to some classes and educational components as well. But um, yeah, you know, we, people, we service the stuff we sell, but we also service uh, things that people bring in as, as well. You have a lot, a, a huge, huge wide variety of different things for really everybody who needs uh, a blade of some sort. So for anyone who is unfamiliar with knives in general, and I think a lot of people aren't familiar with any sort of like cutlery. They just say, oh, you know, they are, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's just an easy thing for me to be home and just, you know, cut my, cut my stuff with. Um, what is the difference? Like, what is it that makes a good knife a good knife? What is it that makes that blade you know, the quality that it is? Uh, that's a good um, question. After you, oh, yeah, you right. got it. All right, sure. Um, well, we really do say, and we really do mean uh, that a good knife is one that you like to use and that gets the job done safely. That could be something you got at the dollar store. Uh, it could be something you found in your grandparents' basements, or it could be, you know, one of the more exotic things that we have here. Um, but really, uh, it's the inside that counts, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, it, what makes a good knife a good knife, at least objectively, uh, is its metallurgical structure. And that's something that you can't see. It's only something that you can experience uh, in use uh, with food and product uh, and in servicing, be it sharpening or repair or polishing, what have you. Um, so, you know, we give the example, if, if you ever see a knife that's a thousand dollars next to a knife that's a hundred dollars they look almost exactly the same and you're like what the heck is going on this is silly um you're you're well hope hopefully there's better materials in, in, in the more expensive one to begin with but you're really paying for what's under the hood uh the metallurgical structure and the blade is made out of metal so the metallurgical structure is what determines everything um, of course, I mean, there, there are other things as well as, as, you know, how well done the grind is, and that's what the blade looks like throughout its length, which will have some impacts on edge retention, structural integrity, food release, et cetera. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to what it's made of um, and, and who, who basically cooks the steel, so to speak. Uh, you know, a good smith that's worth his weight in gold uh, is, you know, you can almost think of them as a three-star Michelin chef you know, they can take just about any ingredient and turn it into something special. Um, but, you know, nobody knows anything about knives. We didn't, we didn't at one point either, right? Um, so it throws off a lot of people when they see some of the price points, uh, you know, especially some of the Japanese stuff can have. Um, but, 
really you're 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 paying for metallurgical perfection. So if you if you took over if you took a knife that's you know one of our more expensive models and you broke it in half, please don't do that. Um, and then looked under that fractured piece with a microscope, you'd see all of these super tiny dots, which we call grains. Uh, so grain, you know, steel is just made out of kind of globule pieces of, of iron and carbon, whatever alloys you have in there that make up that steel, squished together. Um, and they orient them, themselves in certain ways, depending on the steel and the hardness, et cetera. Um, but you tend to want a finer grain. You can get more out of a finer grain. You know, we're boiling down a lot of complicated things here. But um, so really, you're looking for a fine grain steel that's ground well uh, with good materials, ideally, uh, and that ultimately just fits your your hand well and that you like. Um, you know, that it, you could like something that's less expensive than something that's more expensive and objectively uh, better. But you know, at the end of the day. Like we said, a good knife is one that you like, so it really comes down to what feels best for you. Yeah, I would say two of the biggest questions to ask yourself when coming into our shop. Um, first off is, you know, something of preference. Uh, what type of handle would you like? We carry things that are both uh, WA style handled, which are your traditional sort of Japanese ones. They typically have the magnolia handle with the black, uh, black horn ferrule, uh, or you have your, you know, Western style handle. Um, Typically, which is something that like a Wustoff or a Hinkle is going to have, you know, the thing with the three rivets in it and your heavier bolster. Um, practical difference between the two of them is that, you know, the Western handle is going to be a little bit heavier. So it's going to sort of put the weight back in your hand a little bit more and give you a little bit more ease of using the heel of your knife. And the Japanese knives, uh, their handles are typically lighter, so it'll make it a little more blade heavy and tilt it a little more. So um, outside of the idea of just, you know, how comfortable the knife is in your hand, um, you know, asking yourself what side of the knife you like to use. Are you someone who uses the tip of your knife often or the heel of your knife? And that'll sort of help direct which direction and handle you want. And then the other major question is stainless steel and carbon steel. Uh, carbon steel is the kind that has the potential to rust um, if you like, leave it wet. Um, it also forms a patina, which is the acidic reaction. So when you're cutting lemons, tomatoes, onions, it's going to stain the blade. Um, so the patina actually is an extremely surface level reaction. Um, the deeper set your patina gets, the less likely it is for rust to form. So it's one of those things where, you know, you need to be a little more mindful of a carbon steel knife. But the reason that people deal with that rust management is how much easier it typically is to sharpen on the other end. Uh, carbon steel knives are, you know, vastly easier. Um, you know, I, it's, it's just sort of like as a mental image, I like to say that carbon steel is like sanding a nice hardwood and uh, stainless steel is like sanding leather. It can sort of gum up, it's a little bit. So if sharpening is something that you really wanna focus on, you know, recommended towards thinking about a carbon steel knife, but, uh, you know, as far as the major questions to ask yourself, I think that those are the two that really help, you know, pinpoint what type and style of knife you're going to get. And, and as Ryan was touching on, the reason that, uh, you know, carbon steel or stainless steel uh, is such a big question besides the staining component uh, is that the, the easiness of servicing uh, comes into play. And that's really why people continue to A, produce carbon steel and, and B, continue to, to use them. Uh, is going back to that metallurgical structure. Uh, carbon steel is a lot easier to service because it generally, there's a lot of generalizations in this. There's never really straightforward answers. 
but generally has a much finer, finer metallurgical structure, which allows it to be serviced a lot better. Um, whenever you add chromium, the alloy uh, typically used to make something stainless that kind of gunks up uh, this fine metallurgical structure that carbon steel tends to have going for it and becomes, a, you know, to a certain degree on the steel and method of production, et cetera, a little bit more difficult to service. So, you know, that, that is definitely uh, a big one for sure. So the next thing that I wanted to get into is kind of this kitchen knife 101 sort of talk when it comes to actually using the knives. So there's obviously a huge variety of different knife styles, and I'm sure there's some that are very fine and are meant to be used for one specific purpose. But if you had to pick, you know, let's say five or six, I'm not going to put a specific number on it, but what are your number one or your top styles to have in the kitchen? That's a good question. I'm going to let, I mean, I, I can certainly uh, answer this question, but I'm going to let uh, the chef here, Ryan, uh, answer that for you guys. Yeah, so um, I think that there, it's a very good question, you know, what knives to have in your arsenal. And I think that, um, you know, starting out, people who jump in and get that six to eight knife set, you know, I think that you should restrain yourself. I think you start off and get, you know, one to two knives. I'll discuss, you know, the five major ones I'm thinking about. But, you know, when I was a chef, I noticed that the people who had the most knives in their role had the most cuts on their hands because they're not getting used to that knife, you know. Um, a well-trained chef with a traditional chef knife should be able to handle 95% of the tasks. So, you know, having a large selection of knives isn't something that you're typically, you're not going to typically be rotating through them in one session. It may be nice to have them around just because you like to, you know, disperse the wear on the knife, you know, keeps them sharper if you're using them less, each of them. But for the most part, majoritively, you're not going to be switching knives a lot of times through uh, during, you know, an average time cooking. Um, uh, the five major types that I think that, you know, are ones to really consider potentially getting are the Giotto or chef knife, which is your very traditional, you know, your chef knife looking, uh, Wusthof makes them, you know, it's, it's your very classic looking chef knife. Um, that's used once again for 95% of things. Um, when I'm discussing uses, culinary knives are not butchery knives. You shouldn't use a culinary knife in a butchery situation. Uh, their metallurgical structure isn't really geared for that. Uh, they're typically a little more brittle. So you want to stay away from butchery stuff with culinary knives. Before but, we um, move on, can you just elaborate on what some of those, like the difference between a culinary versus a butchery? Are you talking, let's say, chopping through bone or something like that? Is that what you're referring to? I'll let the butcher, Evan, uh, handle this one. Oh, yeah, I forgot I did some butchery. <laughs> um, well, but to, to this critique what you just said, uh, you don't cut through bone. Uh, you saw through bone. Uh, meat cleavers are not meant to go cleaving through bone. It, it's kind of a, a misconception. You, you, you use a cleaver to finish the cut uh, that the saw did, uh, for, for the most part, of course. Um, but, meat, but meat butchery, uh, they tend to be uh, made of softer to a softer level of hardness. And, and that's actually uh, something that we might talk, talk about is the differences in hardness of steels. Ja Japanese knives largely are defined as being quite hard, uh, while Western knives, your, your German, French, American knives, tend to be made to, to softer uh, levels of hardness. And that, and that does have real world applications. Uh, and sorry to go on this tangent, but it's important. Um, with, with a hard steel, like a Japanese knife, uh, they can, that blade can tolerate keener edges. 
So keenness, sharpness is just a point, the very edge with less material behind it. So if that material behind your edge is hard, you need less of it to support your edge. So you can make your knives thinner and thus lighter. And since the material is hard, it is more wear resistant in use. So longer lived edges. So Japanese culinary knives tend to be thinner, lighter, sharper, and longer lasting. However, the thinner and harder you make edges to get these performance benefits that largely define Japanese culinary knives, the more brittle it becomes. So, so like Ryan was saying, you don't want to take especially Japanese culinary knives to a butchery application because in butchery applications, you're seeing a lot of use and abuse. And for that, you want a softer steel, which is what largely defines Western knives. So while Western knives tend to be thicker, heavier, uh, and can't get as sharp nor last as long, the main pro for the average user is that unlike those thin, hard, brittle edges that will chip upon abuse, these soft edges will deform to a size. And that's often why they are paired with honing rods, those little cylindrical metal things that you go back and forth on the, on the blade. Uh, a, those are not sharpeners. Uh, don't, don't use those to, to sharpen, sharpen your edge. Uh, use them as sparingly as possible as well. Uh, because like a paper clip, the more you use those rods, the more you're flipping that edge back and forth and the more you weaken it and actually shorten your edge life. So, you know, a lot of people think that those are sharpeners and the first thing they do uh, is they get in the kitchen and they pick it up and they go as fast as they can thinking that they're better than they are. We've all done it. Uh, don't do that. But with butchery knives, uh, they tend to be thicker and softer. Uh, so that they can go up against hard things like bone. Uh, so uh, that's, you know, when your meat flavor is super thick uh, because it literally has more, well, it needs more mass A to support uh, that edge if it's soft, but you need the mass to go through hard things to help literally absorb force. Um, so they tend to be made metallurgically quite soft. Uh, that's good if that answers the question. So I, get, I, I, go on, I go on all these tangents and I just can't. Myself, so. Oh, that's fine. Um, yeah, did I uh, answer? The I think that answers the question. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yeah. Learn something new. I, yeah, I mean, if we wanted to get back to the the five, yep, then, definitely. Uh, awesome. So yeah, so there's the Gyoto, which is you know your typical chef knife. Like I said, use that 95% of what you do. If there was one knife to really spend your money on and make sure that you have its quality knife, I would say it'd be your chef knife. Um, the next knife I'm going to talk about is called a Santoku, and this right here is uh, basically it can be your it can be your chef knife. It, it's the Japanese sort of home cook's knife. It's typically a little bit stouter of a knife, a um, little shorter and then taller, which is sort of the not the thickness dimension, but the the height of the knife when it's not the length, um, sort of like how much knuckle clearance you have. Um, typically, Santokus have a little bit higher knuckle clearance and a little bit shorter length. Um, that sort of lends them a little bit better towards a somewhat veggie diet. Um, the nice thing about the Santokus is that, you know, they're great for a lot of chopping, um, the push and pull style chopping. Um, I guess before I go forward, it's the two styles of choppings you're going to mostly see are your sort of rolling chop, which is where you have the knife constantly on the cutting board. You know, you're just sort of rolling back and forth. And then, um, you know, that's how you're getting the food under the knife is through the rock. Um, or you're doing the push and pull style, which is where you're taking the knife completely off the board, lifting it up and then chopping down. Um, 
the rolling chop is typically what's used for the gyoto because it has that nice belly to it. Um, and then the santoku is where you start to see a little bit more flattening of the edge, where typically the first third to half of the santoku is going to be almost dead flat, besides just a little blip at the heel, um, which allows you to do that, you know, sort of uh, push and pull style chopping. And then you have that whole section of the knife come in contact with the board at the same time. You don't need any rocking motion or anything to sort of, you know, guarantee you've cut all the way through, unlike you know, a fully curved knife where only that one point of the ball is sort of touching the board. Um, so the Santoku is sort of, if you know you like the push and pull style chopping, that might be the way for you to go uh, for your chef knife. Um, the third one is the Japanese vegetable knife or the Nakiri, which looks a lot like a cleaver, but it's a lot thinner knife, typically as thin as your uh, Santoku or Gyoto is going to be. Um, and it sort of doesn't have a point to the knife. It sort of is rounded a little bit. So there, a lot of Nakiris do have a tiny bit of a round to the end. So you can manage a little bit of a rolling chop if you need, but definitely not what they're made for. Uh, they're, they're pretty much strictly for that push and pull style chop. Great for growing through larger vegetables. Think of yourself cutting a head of cabbage and sort of how you're just going to attack it from the top and go right through. And having that nice flat edge on the bottom means you don't need to, you know, you can just, you know, sort of go like Morimoto and just bam, 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 bam. You can make eye contact with people as you're doing stuff because typically in that style of chop, your hand is in contact with the blade at the entire time. So you're sort of allowed to, you know, take your eyes off for a second and look impressive. Um, so I think that, you know, the Nakiri typically is, is a knife that you could do 95% of your tasks with. It just doesn't have the versatility of that point. So that's typically what, strict, what restricts it from people using it as their main knife. Um, I, speaking of like a little tip, uh, the petty knife or utility knife uh, is sort of the next knife. Um, it, it can be anywhere from a paring knife, which is you know your little two inch knife, which is typically used for peeling in your hand um, or your petty knife, which is up to you know sometimes five inches, which is typically a shorter knife, more of a little like needle nimble knife, use that to take the cores out of your tomatoes um, other things like that. Um, I like to call them sandwich knives or bar knives. You know, if you just need to cut a lemon in half or maybe just a tomato and an onion for a sandwich and you don't need your full chef knife, you can just use that. Um, so, you know, so that's definitely a great little addition to have uh, in your mix. And that's typically one that you'll see uh, stay sharp the longest because it's typically a lower impact knife. You're not going through your denser vegetables with that and you're not really hitting your cutting board very hard with your thin little knife. Um, so it's going to stay sharp for a while. Um, and then the last one, which I think is the most dependent on your diet would be something like a slicer. Um, that can be a single bevel slicer, which the double bevel, single bevel thing we'll get into in a little bit. That's a whole can of worms. Um, but the, uh, slicer is good for, you know, slicing typically proteins and things like that. So, you know, if you find yourself slicing a lot, you know, a slicer is great, but um, you know, a nice long chef knife or Kyoto could sort of do that same purpose as well. So that one's, you know, I'd say the most on the fringe of necessity uh, when it comes to your knife sort of selection. But yeah, that's sort of my opinion on five that are, you know, pretty good things to think about if you want to add to your collection and that wouldn't necessarily step on each other's toes. And then of course, a butchery knife in there if you eat a lot of, eat a lot of meat. You guys have mentioned a few times keeping knives uh, or knives going dull, I should say, or maybe they're getting just like all that wear and tear. It gets on them at some point. 
for someone who sharpens their knife the right way, how long does that average on average, does it stay to a point where you won't need to sharpen it again? Uh, yeah, so we have no idea. Yeah. That is, it's one of those, like, yeah. how often should you get new shoes? Uh, I don't know how you wear them. I don't know how aggressively, you know, it, it truly is a thing where it, it don't is, go by time. Yeah. It's, it's don't go by time. There's not a certain amount of strokes or anything. It truly is when you're not happy with how it's performing anymore, um, which is, you know, I know it's just sort of vague thing to say to somebody, but um, truly I, I, we've seen people who bring in knives that we would, you know, you can see they, they're as thick as the spine and it's dead, but they're, they're like, no, I've been using it up till recently. And it's, you know, so the levels people are willing to accept is what's considered sharp, you know, varies so much as well. So it's just when you're, when you're like, nah, it's not sharp anymore. If the knife is crushing things instead of slicing or chopping, that's probably a good indicator. I mean, if that's the method of cooking you like, just crushing <laughs> stuff, keep going with it. Yeah, I mean, we get that question every day, and it really is it really is impossible to answer. Uh, there's too many variables, and you know, it's not like these knives come in rated at six months of retention or eight months of retention or anything like that. Um, it's really dependent on use and and what is acceptably sharp uh, for for you, and that's probably you know, what I find acceptably sharp is different. Um, so it really, you know, a lot of people get hung up in, in time and number of knives and all this stuff. Really, it, the answer is it depends on you. There is no correct duration. There is no correct number of knives. Uh, it really is just what works, what you think you need and, and what works best for you. And so another thing that I wanted to get into when kind of talking about this initial styles and things like that, is where to go and what to look for when purchasing them because a lot of people if they walked into you know a general kitchen store and I know I worked at you know I worked at Lowe's before that I probably didn't know a lot of things about a lot of the stuff that they had there but people expect everyone to be an expert so if there's someone working that store that you know isn't really well versed in the knives or anything what can someone do to really make sure that they're not wasting their money and getting something that isn't right for them that's a very good question. Um, I, and the difficulty is, is that this happens with, with any consumer product, but marketing has destroyed, you know, 99% of what is true. And there really only are a handful of other shops, uh, if we could be so modest to say, on, on our level in, in North America. Uh, you know, Mar knives have become so overmarketed and so full of BS uh, and so confusing that what people do is they go online and they search what is the best knife or what have you. And they're going to read the same article that somebody else read. And it's going to be, you know, one of the big five brands or some shit. Uh, some, something like that, you know, for example, in, like, again, no one knows anything about knives. So let's say you're, you work, you work for the New York Times and you, you get assigned a knife article and you're like, why am I being assigned this? I know nothing. So I'm going to go online and I'm going to search stuff and I'm just going to read what everybody else has read. And a lot of that is written by this marketing, the marketing department of these big, big nice. brands. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, so it, it is yeah. hard to, I mean, honestly, it is hard for a beginner to get into it because it is so confusing. Um, you know, we like to say that the best knives are the ones that you've never heard of because those, the people making those knives are too busy 
making good knives because everybody wants their knives and they don't need to market their knives. Everybody in the know knows where to go, but how do you get into the know? Yeah, that's, that's difficult. And, you know, honestly, we don't really have a good answer for you. Uh, you know, that's, I think, where down the road, uh, you know, we'll be adding a lot of educational information uh, to our website. So it's not just a web store, uh, you know, it's a place to get actual information. Um, but, you know, how do you find us? We don't do any marketing. Um, so it, it, it is it is tough, definitely. And there's not really uh, an easy answer. I, I would, you know, if I were the layperson, I would maybe ask my chef friend, but then, but then you have it all over again. You know, you get into restaurants one of two ways. You either go to culinary school where they have some deal with Hinkle's or Ustoff or whatever, and those are the knives that they swear by. So those are the knives that you use and then that you swear by to everybody else, right? Or you go straight to the restaurant and you learn about knives from the guy who went to culinary school, right? And so it's just a crazy vicious feedback cycle. And that's why 99% of the knives that people drop by off here are the same stuff because that's what people buy what they see. And also finding out about this stuff is, is difficult and confusing. Uh, so it's not really, it's tough, you know, and, and, and hopefully, you know, over time we can make a mark uh, and educate people, but um, it's, it's very clouded, uh, you know, on purpose, unfortunately, uh, so that these bottom line brands can get your business. And knives, of course, are such a broad spectrum of pricing. I think there are knives that are, are probably great to have that are in the low hundreds and there are knives that go all the way up to in the thousands. So for somebody, you know, just your everyday person, they're at home, you know, they're just cooking in the kitchen, they're doing their own thing. They're not necessarily a chef. How, how do you recommend that person go about selecting a knife? Do they need to spend, you know, 500 plus dollars for something? Or do you also have really good quality knives that are in that lower price point? So they're more reasonable for the everyday home chef. Yeah, I, mean, oh. I think Ryan might have a little bit better input on that, but just, uh, yeah, you don't need to drop a lot of money. It's one of the first things that we say when people walk in here because they're bewildered by some of the prices. Um, we try our best, you know, we, we focus on largely handmade stuff. So, you know, getting low price points is, is just inherently difficult, um, but you really don't need to spend a lot of money to get a good one. In fact, we suggest, we highly suggest that you buy them one at a time and you buy what you can afford and uh, go from there because you don't want to have bad knife skills and not know what you're getting yourself into, uh, you know, like buying a sports car and then you take it off roading and then you broke your car and you're like, oh my God, I just lost $30,000. And then you try to bring it back to us and you're like, I tried to carve a turkey with this vegetable knife. And then you were like, what are you, you know? Uh, so, but Ryan can probably talk a little bit more about what you need to get started as like the, the home chef, or maybe if you're even starting your first uh, first job in a restaurant. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, uh, when it comes to being a home cook, uh, I find that, you know, most people get their knives when they go off to college or they go, you know, or they get married, uh, or, you know, the two big ones I find, uh, you're typically not buying your own knives, uh, it's a lot of times, which is a pretty curious thing as well. Cause you know, if people are, you know, they, they didn't buy their knives, so they're not putting in that thought and effort into, into you know, what they're purchasing um, or what they have. Um, I think that, you know, the best way to do it is just sort of uh, depending on whether if you have knives now that, 
you're just looking to replace um, or you're just looking to get your first knife. Um, I think that either way, the, the right way to go is that sort of chef knife or santoku, uh, that, that universal knife um, that you can do anything with. Um, I think that, you know, focusing on getting one knife and then uh, potentially adding a second if you find out through using the first one that it isn't really performing the task that you're, you're looking for, uh, that might be the time to get the second one. But um, instead of spending, you know, 300 to sometimes up to $1,000 for these big sets of eight to 12 knives with the steak knives and the, and the honing rod and the block and all that, just, you know, reel it back and, and sort of, you know, ask yourself those questions that were sort of outlined in the beginning about, you know, do you want stainless steel or carbon steel? Um, hopefully you can find yourself a location where you can get a couple knives into your hands. Um, I think that that's really important because, uh, you know, the weights of knives vary drastically. And even when people hold, you know, Western knives with that heavier Western style handle, but it's from Japan, you know, half the time they're like, wow, this is really light, you know, compared to a German knife. So um, I think that, you know, potentially asking your friends uh, if they have, if anybody has a, you know, a higher quality knife that they like, and, you know, really seeing if you can just potentially get your hands on one or talk to the person and see what they like about it. Um, maybe you can find uh, a more niche knife store like us that, you know, is going to be able to fill you in on the information you're looking for. Um, you know, like Evan said, hopefully we're going to have a lot more information on our website to really, you know, be a more fulfilling experience while you're there. Um, I know that uh, we're always trying to have, you know, an experience with us be a learning experience as well as a purchasing experience. Um, we're very big on the idea of, you know, just coming in and learning what we have, learning about knives first and not necessarily purchasing right out of the gate. Um, you know, I mean, if you need a knife, you need a knife. If it's your first one. But if you're more or less uh, going to be looking to replace a knife out of your set, you know, take take a good month and spend a couple nights working with each of you, those knives and see which what aspects you like about them and what you don't. Uh, and then, you know, uh, try to find, you know, a somewhat. I don't, not not reputable most places are reputable but uh, a more knowledgeable uh, knife store um, and see uh, you know because a lot of times you know places like us are going to be able to sort of zero in on a knife or two that will typically work for a person based off you know their needs and whatnot so um, you'd be surprised you know uh, how, how good of an idea it is to you know email you know one of us or your local knife store or something and you know just ask us because it's we love talking about knives and we'll tell you about it and hopefully you'll get as excited about knives as we are. And, you know, yeah, to, to, to try and nail down a little bit of a price point thing, uh, I'd say that you're going to get as a first, first, or like you're, if you're getting your first legit knife, uh, you know, most people are spending about 150 to 250. Uh, you know, the majority of our business is knives below 250. So we sell a ton of them. They're really good. Some of our favorite knives are 75 bucks, you know, um, really, you know, when you're, when you're getting up into the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, uh, it, it really is functional art and you probably hopefully know what you're getting yourself into. And it's beyond the tool at that, at that point, you know, for a lot of people, this is also a collectible industry as well. Uh, because, you know, especially for the Japanese stuff, it's, it's, it's truly generational, uh, you know, teachings. And, and, and once a, a smith or a sharpener retires, 
you know, their stuff is gone forever uh, and, and, and prices can, can skyrocket. But you, but as an average user, you know, you're going to get a lot out of $150, which might sound like a lot for some people. But if you're coming to a place like us, that you're getting way more out uh, out of those $150 than you are going to, you know, your the mall or I don't know where people else get knives elsewhere. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it, you try to find people like us, and we we try to give you honest. We're not we're salespeople second, honestly. Um, you know, we want you to have a good experience, so you come back. And that's, um, I think, a good takeaway too. Is a hundred something dollars for a really high quality knife that was selected by you guys that deal with it every day is going to be probably a better overall knife than the hundred fifty dollar mass produced one. That's really you're paying a lot for the name, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, qual- quality is one thing, right? But you're also, it's also important to remember that these the the knives that we carry at least are coming from people, not robots. All right, so a lot of this money is going to them. Uh, and it's supporting their family. The, the price tag that you pay for largely on these mass-produced brands is, again, their marketing budget, a massive marketing budget. And that's where a lot of that money is going to, and they're bottom dollar companies, right? So they're sourcing these materials from the, low, from the cheapest places they can get, yeah. right on the border of dropping off the quality to what they say they can, can do. Yeah, uh, not not to like throw anything under the bus, but uh, as far as some somewhat excessive advertising, I think that uh, Dow Strong is a somewhat hilarious example. Uh, you can go on Amazon and see that they have, I mean, they must be doing a great job for graphic designers and keeping them hired. Um, but it's it's a pretty funny thing uh, when you when you because you can notice what they're focusing on, and I, some I think people that, might like Dow Strong, and that's great. Yeah, no, there's something great. No, there's nothing wrong about that. I mean, they're, they're definitely, you know, they have their place. Um, but I think that if you find yourself getting sort of a mass brand knife and you've sort of breached that $250 range, um, you know, maybe looking for something mass produced. Because one thing that these large companies do have is a lifelong warranty. You know, you can snap that thing in half, send both pieces back and they'll send you a new one. And that's something that you're getting, um, you know, with a handmade piece of, you know, functional art, you're not necessarily awarded that same uh, luxury. But um, I think that as soon as you start hitting that, you know, $250 mark, you can somewhat easily, uh, if you know the right channels, find yourself a uh, completely handmade knife and and know the person who made it, who's a pretty amazing, uh, who's a recognized, you know, high quality uh, blacksmith. Um, And yeah, I think that, you know, for a surprisingly low amount, you can get yourself um, a knife made by truly one of the top 10 smiths on the planet. And uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot of fun in that. So the next thing that I really wanted to get into too, before we get out of here is maintenance and storage. Uh, So obviously, like you talked about earlier, honing and sharpening, two different things. Uh, What are, first of all, what methods of sharpening? Obviously, not everyone's going to have you guys down the street that they can take their stuff to. So if you're someone that lives somewhere without that access, what's the best way to keep your knives sharp at home? Um, and then I would say, what is the best times to, when do you need to sharpen? And when do you need to hone, if that's something you're going to do? Good question. Uh, 
Well, you know, the few places like us do typically accept mail-ins, so that is an option. Um, but for exclusively being at home, you know, don't get those jigs. What you know, there's so many jigs I can't even describe them because what happens with those, you know, pull through or I don't know, they got other things nowadays. Uh, people every day come into us and then they ask us about their thing, their jig that came with their block, and then ask us if it works. And we're like, why are you asking us? Like, if it works, you wouldn't even be here, you know? So those are really just money makers for a lot of these companies. And they have a one size fits all type of sharpening process that can really, if, if you have a legitimate knife can damage them. Um, but generally, you know, unfortunately we'd say the best method is, is whetstone. Uh, but also those have the highest learning curve, so that's tough. Um, but really, you want something wide. Uh, for example, the inverse being the honing rod, right? So that's a small half inch diameter, right? And it's really hard, it's hardened on purpose. But whenever you put a cylindrical object onto a flat object, like an edge, that's also thin and hard, very little surface area contact actually occurs. So any amount of force that you put in there is amplified onto that tiny bit of edge that you're on. And again, a lot of people like to go as fast as they can, and they're just torquing that thing back and forth. With like a leather strap, for example, you know, it's one to two, two and a half inches wide. Uh, a, that leather is soft, uh, so leather's a good one, um, but you're dispersing force across a wider area, and it's a lot safer. Um, so generally, if you could find leather, you can really strop on just about anything, including newspaper is a good one. Uh, newspaper generally has a little bit of silica in it, which is uh, generally the main abrasive in, in Japanese natural stones, for example. But you can strop on your jeans or textured canvas uh, or anything like that, generally in what's called an edge trailing stroke uh, direction. So the edge trails the direct the spine and direction of movement. So you're not going edge first into whatever you're you're working. So if you're doing that in leather, for example, you'll just cut your leather up. But if you are dragging the edge backwards, it's a lot it's a lot more passive of, of a force and it's a lot more gentle and harder to screw up your edge. Um, so you know we we would suggest you get leather straps. Uh, you can also load them up with what are called micro abrasives like chromium oxide or aluminum oxide or diamond spray. Um, those, those are probably the safest bets. You really don't even really need to know how to do it super well um, because it's just a lot more passive on your edge than something like a hardened small cylindrical honing rod. Um, so that's, that would be our best suggestion. Um, other than that, maybe getting a really high grit whetstone where you're not removing a lot of metal. So that's also safe as well. Um, but it's tough. I mean, you know, that's, that's how a lot of these other brands get you, right? They, they know that people don't know what they're doing and they damage their knives. And so they got to get new knives. Um, it's tough. It's tough, right? And uh, generally the things with the best results have the, the highest learning curve as much with life. But um, that, that's what, you know, we, we, we answer emails all day about this stuff. So, you know, contacting us or, you know, another reputable retailer, uh, we can walk you through it and, you know, hopefully we'll have some videos and stuff like that, but maybe, maybe Ryan has a hack or two that 
Yeah, yeah, kind of on like um, sort of when, when to when do you need sharpening and when do you need honing? Um, honing is typically really only used on like a softer German knife, um, or not necessarily German knife, but just a softer steeled knife. Um, honing is the act of realigning your bent edge. Um, so using a steel honing rod, you're basically just you know dragging the edge across it and and sort of straightening out any you know bends that you might have along your edge, giving you access to that tip again. Um, uh, so a lot of times you're not going to want to do that really with any sort of harder Japanese steeled knife. Um, once you sort of hit a certain hardness, um, your steel isn't really going to bend anymore. It's going to chip instead. Um, it's going to be, you know, so uh, using a metal honing rod on like a nice hard Japanese knife is actually going to do damage to it. So um, I would say that unless your knife came with a honing rod or like came with a block, like I would steer away from using a honing rod. Um, and unless it is a nice soft or unless you notice that there's that sort of bent edge to it, but a, uh, a honing rod. Yeah. It can, can be very dangerous uh, around the wrong knife. Uh, that, that's how we make all our money is we charge repair costs on overuse of honing rods because people think that they're sharpened. <laughs> yeah. So that's, why we're, that's why we're so big about not using them is because, it's no one else how to use them right and exactly fine, like but like and, and getting nice. yeah getting something like a uh the sharpening rods so we have sharpening rods which are basically those honing rods but they're made out of uh ceramic uh the same thing that the you know synthetic sharpening stones are made out of so uh getting something like that and learning how to properly use it with you know edge trailing strokes um, will, you know that is something that you could use on any knife um you know on your higher carbon your nicer carbon steel knives you can use nice high grit ones um but i would recommend using something more like a ceramic honing rod a ceramic rod uh which actually does the act of sharpening uh which in turn will also help with those sort of bent edges you could use it as a honing rod but to answer your question about when to hone versus when to sharpen honing or stropping or whatever you want to call it is a band-aid so you start using that when it's when the knife stops performing the way you want it to and then you get it properly sharpened, which is a much more step-by-step -step controlled process when the Band-Aid no longer stops the bleeding, to, to speak grotesquely, um, if that makes any sense. Eventually you will need a, a proper reset of the edge, not just, not just putting more and more Band-Aids. Do you see any place in the home or any for someone that, you know, maybe doesn't, have the time or want to put in the effort to really learning how to perfect using a whetstone and using some sort of a maybe more of a belt sharpener now with a high-end kitchen knife obviously that's going to do more damage than good probably something that's really high-end like what you guys deal with uh, but obviously they have their applications more of a you know general tool knife that you don't mind scratching up or doing something like that too um, like pocket knife even what do you guys see I guess the place for those um, I actually would say that's probably worse because with with a belt grinder or whatever machine you want to talk about, those are moving at speed, right? So the margin for error is actually smaller. Uh, when you're doing this by hand, you know, you can only do X strokes per minute, but in a grinder or what have you, you're doing hundreds of strokes per second. So it's actually possibly more damaging if you don't know what you're doing. So the interesting thing is 
less efficiency or slower speed actually means more precision, uh, you know, because you have the time to readjust and, and try some, a different angle out or what have you. Rather, if you're not paying attention for a quarter second, you could have just ruined your night on a grinder. Um, so, you know, like we, we do have a grinder that has some special properties to it, but, you know, that's, that's learning a whole new method of sharpening. Uh, and actually not something we try to teach until you have a firm understanding of, of using uh, hand stones, with stones. So, but I mean, it's faster, obviously, but, um, and, and best uh, in some applications, especially if you have big, thick knives, you need to honk off a bunch of metal, but it can actually be more difficult to learn and also even more dangerous uh, for your person. And you guys, of course, work with a lot of different things. So one question I have before we wrap up, what are your favorite knives to actually work with? Are any of them, like, is there one that stands out to you that is the most interesting or in terms of just working with it and, and kind of, you know, creating? Yeah, 100, 100%. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to go to, to have this sort of amazing period where I was half at out of the knife store and half out at the Tuscan table. So I was able to use all these amazing knives um, I was sort of getting. Um, I've used, you know, the crazy $2,000 knives. I've used, you know, the $1.50 knives um, and everything in between. And hands down, my favorite knife to use is uh, called the Hitohira Tanaka. Uh, Tanaka is the blacksmith. Kaiuzo is the sharpener. Uh, it's a blue one steel 240 millimeter Migaki Gyoto uh, with a Taihei rosewood handle. And it is just, it's the perfect knife uh, down to edge retention and how easy it sharpens, grind, everything about it is my dream knife. And I wouldn't, if I only had one knife ever in my life, it would be that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, the funny thing with some of the knives we have is they've got such long names uh you know but what do you you know so they're all descriptive um which is pretty cool so if you know how to read the language uh you, you really can talk nitty-gritty um I had, like i said earlier in this session i'm less skilled than ryan is so uh i i actually really like nakiri those vegetable chopping knives because of how easy they are to use uh they're one of our you know behind our two the two main multi-purpose knives is Hantoku and Gyoto slash chef knife. Uh, surprisingly for, for me, when I, when I first started, I didn't foresee the Nakiri becoming so popular, but it's so popular because it's so easy to use. It's just really ultimately a chopping knife, although you can do more with it, the more skills you have. Uh, but because I stumble over my own fingers, uh, I, like, I like the Nakiri. It's that, that rectangular shaped one, and it looks cool, so it's a conversation starter too. I love that. And it's really helpful to um, learn all this. I think everyone's going to take a lot away from it. Before we wrap, where can everybody find you online and on social media um, so they can either visit you themselves or shop? I know you guys have a shop online feature, I believe. So if they can do that as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, we well, we're located at 93 Washington Ave in Portland, Maine. Uh, we have a web store, www stratoportland.com uh, and then we've got our instagram feed at stratoportland now yeah but uh, you can always email us as well at info at stratoportland.com we're always happy to answer 
questions and help you guide you down this endless rabbit hole. Awesome. Well, we thank you guys so much for coming on and talking to us tonight. We sure learned a lot and you guys are probably going to be seeing a lot more of me in the store. Yeah, <laughs> great. Thank you, man. Thank you. Nick, yeah, we can just talk knives. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Nice meeting everybody. Have a good night. Thank yeah, you. Cheers. Nice well. Thank you. Thank you. To follow us on social at Uncorked Corner and on the blog at uncorkedcorner.com for a taste of more food and beverage content. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave a comment, subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Thanks for listening. Thanks.